Willkommen zum Triagement Podcast mit mich, Gary McGowan, und meinem Co-Host Patty Crowell. How are you, Patty? For usual, Gary, I am absolutely splendid. Couldn't be better. How are you? Now that you're speaking German. Oh, oh sorry. I Honestly, I didn't even realize. It just happens. Yeah, I'm actually a polyglot and sometimes I end up speaking the wrong language. So I'm very sorry. Um, I'm very good. Thank you. And, you know, as you know, I speak fluent German, Russian, Latin, Swahili and Farsi. So I mean, Irish. Yeah. No, 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 no. Anyway, enough of this fucking nonsense. Um, we have another episode of the podcast to record. And this episode is a continuation of sorts from the last episode where we have been talking about injuries, pain management, a few different things. And as Gary is our resident expert in all things injury and pain, because he's a sadomasochist. Um, what's the story, Gary? What are we talking about today? Yeah, so resident expert, by the way, is a relative term because basically we have a team of uh, non-experts who know nothing about pain and injury. So I just know just slightly above nothing. So in case you're listening and you're an actual expert, don't trust anything I say. Anyway, pain and injury, guys. Last week, we talked a little bit about this, okay? We talked last week about some of the factors, kind of big picture factors, I guess, in terms of programming that could influence one's risk of pain and injury. And we discussed this in a very non-specific manner. We discussed things such as volume, intensity, um, how close you're going to failure, um, touched on exercise selection a little bit. So we touched on some of the variables that are going to um, determine injury risk, I guess, and also that are modifiable when you do sustain an injury. But today, what I want to kind of move towards is just discussing, I guess, some of the specifics we can only be so so specific like we're going to talk about general body parts that get injured in the gym and potentially what you can do about that we'll obviously be flying through it because you can't just give a full prescription as to what someone should do with different injuries in an hour podcast but we will do our best and what i'm going to do is talk about some of the most i guess common areas that i see people um, have issues with in 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 gym based trainees uh, and then I'll touch on some of the specifics related to maybe some common field field sports and stuff like that. So first and foremost, I suppose the three kind of big things that come to mind when I think of people who are who hurt themselves in the gym doing kind of standard uh, resistance training programs would probably be shoulders, knees and low back, you know, maybe put elbows in there as well. But they're the three that like come to mind for me as being the things I see most frequently in my coaching practice. Of course, there's some selection bias there, but that's the audience. Now, if we start with shoulders, I think shoulders are definitely the joints that people complain of most often. And this is probably for a couple of different reasons. The primary one being that the shoulder is involved in basically every training day. So if you're doing pushing exercises, you're doing pulling exercises, even if you're doing lower body exercises like squats or you're doing um, arm training, even the shoulder is almost always taking some sort of load. So as a result, it's pretty easy to overdo it if you're doing high levels of overall training volume. 
And particularly if you're emphasizing the upper body and for guys, especially if you're, you know, hammering chest day all the time. Okay. That's very common, especially early on in people's training career. What they'll be doing is, you know, really trying to emphasize chest development, trying to get a massive bench press and the shoulder often becomes the limiting factor in those types of situations. So some of the most common uh, experiences that people tend to have would be maybe pain at the bottom of a pressing exercise, pain that is aggravated by going closer to failure or later in the workout when you're later in um, your sets, let's say the fourth set rather than the first set, for example. And they tend to be some of the, the kind of primary things that, that people will complain of. Of course, you can have more specific symptom patterns where maybe someone has pain more so with rowing exercises or pull down exercises. But I think that's a bit rarer than the push dominant shoulder pain. That tends to be what we see most of the time. So for the most part, when someone's in that externally rotated position, more extension or more abduction, that tends they, those tend to be the positions that will flare um, up their shoulder pain. So for me, in my coaching practice, very often what I'll do is I'll start by saying, right, what, what variables here are most likely to be influencing um, this shoulder pain? So for example, I might look at um, someone's workout and see, right, you're doing five sets of bench press, you're doing all of them, you know, down to your chest and the pain is greatest in that bottom position. So maybe what we might do is reduce your bench press volume to three or four sets and we'll reduce the range of motion to change direction two or three inches off the chest. So we've changed two primary variables there. Then the person might come back and they'll say, you know what, it, it improved, it feels better, but I've still got a lot of pain towards the end of the set. So what we might say then is, right, instead of going one rep from failure, I want you to stay three reps from failure. And then we get to the point where they're able to, maybe they still have some symptoms, but they're able to push themselves close enough to the point of failure to still get results without aggravating aggravating the pain too much so that might be an example of what we might do there the similar principles would apply to something like a shoulder press similar principles would apply to something like a lateral raise let's say someone might say you know what my lateral raises they're fine but at the top i, I feel a bit of a pinch you know and I, that seems to get worse as the set goes on especially at that top position where it's most difficult what we might do is something like Again, stay a bit further from failure. We might reduce the range of motion so they're not going into that top position. We might even change the exercise slightly to use cables instead of dumbbells because the resistance profile is different. So there's going to be less resistance at the top versus the middle and bottom of the range of motion with a cable versus a dumbbell. So that, again, is a modification that could be made. Similar modifications could be made on the bench press where maybe you'll reduce the load, but you'll add something like a band so that it gets more difficult as you push towards the top and a little bit easier towards the bottom. And again, that's in accordance with the symptoms that someone presents with. So if someone was saying, oh, I actually have pain at the top of the bench press, then clearly you wouldn't be making that change. But if it's at the bottom, then you modify that resistance profile in favor of improving that person's symptoms and allowing them to tolerate that exercise. So there are some of the basic changes that I would make if someone had shoulder pain that was related to pushing exercises. But the principles there can be transferred to many different situations where you're modifying your volume, you're modifying your proximity to failure, you're modifying range of motion, and you're modifying the resistance profile of the exercise or even the entire exercise itself. There can be some more specific circumstances as well, where someone might find that 
they actually have less pain at lower rep ranges rather than higher rep ranges. And that might be because when they're doing heavier sets, they focus on their technique a bit more. They really lock in. Uh, whereas with higher uh, reps, they might find that eventually towards the end of the set, they just get a bit of pain. And it seems to be maybe it's more muscular associated with higher reps, but not lower reps changes in the muscle that's being recruited, etc. We don't entirely know, but there can be some more specific um, presentations like that. The other thing that I would have mentioned in the last episode as well would be tempo. This becomes uh, very important when someone has symptoms where, especially where it's aggravated at the bottom of the rep. So for example, if someone has pain at the bottom of a bench press or any pressing exercise for that matter, and that they find the pain spikes in their shoulder at the bottom, at the change of direction, and they're dropping the weight down aggressively. I know that there's a spike in forces at the bottom if they're dropping that weight quickly. So what I might say is let's slow down, take three seconds on the way down, and then there's less of an abrupt spike in loading that they're dealing with at that change in direction. And that might allow them to perform that exercise with a little bit more comfort. So they'd be some of the big things I think that would come to mind if someone was telling me they had shoulder pain, especially aggravated by pushing exercises, but anything more specific you'd like to, to ask there on the shoulders, buddy? No, not really. I think that's, you know, a lot of it. And I have, well, two things to say, first of all, and we said it in the last episode, but it just bears repeating again, like this all assumes that you have spent some time actually working on your technique. You know, you're not just, <clears throat> oh, I'm doing a bench press and your bench press technique is just fucking woeful. Right. And so you have to actually spend some time, work on your technique, get your technique right, get your technique, you know, perfected if such a thing exists for your body. And then if you're still getting pain after that, then we've got something to deal with. Right. But the first intervention, if you're like, well, maybe not the first, but the first intervention, um, if you're like, oh, this exercise causes me pain, it's probably not to do that exercise or it's to modify that exercise so that it actually fits your body structure rather than you trying to fit your body structure into an exercise. For example, again, you've used the bench press, like who says you have to touch your chest on the bench yeah. press. It might just be a case that for you, you are always going to get pain in that bottom position just by virtue of your structure. You know, it's just beyond the active range of motion and even potentially even the passive range of motion that you have, you know, it's literally just throwing you completely out of position every single time you touch your chest and you've, you know, you're going to get pain as a result of that, right? So technique, it's fundamental. But I do have a question for you, Gary, and this is, you know, it's kind of what you see people do in the gym to overcome what we're talking about. If you're like, oh, a pressing exercise caused me issues. What everyone gets prescribed is just, oh, yeah, do some external rotator work, you know? Mm-hmm. And you'll see people do this, like, well, first of all, the incorrect external rotator work where they're, like, standing, mm-hmm. elbow at their side, dumbbell in hand, and they're just... You can see me on the video. I'm just like turning my elbow out or turning my arm out to the side there. Externally rotating, yes, but the dumbbell, the force going through the dumbbell is down. So it's basically just a bicep challenge, right? And now you could do the one where it's like elbow out to the side and up and down. That's better. Obviously, you can do those ones like porn stars, as they're often called. Um, But is that going to be a good enough cure for this, Gary? Is that all you have to do? You can just keep, you know hammering away at your bench press you can keep hammering away at your pressing exercises but as long as you do some external rotator work is that good enough is that going to heal your shoulders yeah probably not and i think that's the kind of upsetting thing for people is like most people when they get hurt they want something that can, that they can just add in without changing what they've already done okay so it's kind of what we would generally try to do first is addition through subtraction 
through subtraction, where we take away the aggravating factors, see if the symptoms settle, and then that stuff can absolutely have a role. So, you know, sometimes you might want to um, work on your external rotation more. You might want to work on any movement or muscle group that might potentially be a weakness. So if you're doing like dumbbell shoulder presses and you can't even get into that position of external rotation in the first place without weight, then that might very well be something you want to work on. You might want to work on your external rotation, uh, flexibility or mobility or strength in that end range. That might be something that's actually very valuable for you. But you don't do that while also continuing to hammer eight sets of shoulder press to failure within a given workout, you know? So I think firstly, you should think about addition through subtract through subtraction before you think about addition through addition. Okay. So don't start adding loads of stuff in before you take away the things that are very clearly um, most provocative. That's what people do most of the time. They'll say, what can I add to my program? You know, what, what hip stretches can I do to stop getting hip pain, but they won't change their squat uh, volume or intensity or technique. They won't stop touching their chest in the bench press, even though it's hurting them every time they do it, you know? So modify those things first, then consider what you can add in. And, and that's generally the approach I would take that I'll modify the person's program. And then I'll ask myself, is there a weakness or um, some other weak link in the chain that we might need to address to prevent um, instances like this in the first place. You know, an easy example there would be something like a hamstring strain. You know, someone might strain their hamstring during a sporting activity or even in the gym. And we wouldn't expect in that case to just add in hamstring work while also doing the remainder of the, the training program as normal. What we typically have to do is pull back training parameters in the short term so there's less stress in the hamstring and then gradually rebuild. But we rebuild not just to baseline, but rather we say, how can we prevent this in the first place? So we might want a surplus of hamstring strength and we might, we might want to work on our end range strength more than we did previously or more heavy eccentrics or whatever it happens to be. So spot the weak links, but first remove or modify the aggravating factors. Exactly. Right. So that's the shoulders. Is it the same for other you know, muscle groups, joints, structures? What's the story there? Yeah. So, I mean, like rather than repeating the exact same points for every joint, the same principles apply for pretty much every joint in the body. But there's a couple of specific things that I think are worth noting. Um, so I suppose when it comes to the low back, and I want to talk about this in particular, because it's definitely something that people think about differently. When it comes to the low back, people find it a bit more difficult, I think, to appraise pain. So you know, is this on the injury spectrum or is this on the successful workout spectrum? So when someone goes to the gym and they get a ruthless pump in their biceps and their biceps are burning and they're sore the next day, it's generally a positive thing. You know, people are pretty happy about that. Unless maybe you're a waiter um, and you have to carry, you know, trays all day and plates all day the next day, you're probably pretty happy about the bicep pain. You're probably pretty happy about the pain, the pain both within and after the workout. Now, when it comes to the low back, people are generally a little bit more uncertain. You know, they might stop their workout because their low back is getting sore, even if it just feels like a really intense pump. And to be fair, that can be very uncomfortable sometimes, and it can definitely limit your performance. But if you're just getting a pump in your low back and your back is painful during the workout and painful after, but it's very specific to the muscles, it seems to be uh, very clearly activity related in that you were doing an exercise working the low back muscles 
and it's going away after a normal expected time frame of delayed onset muscle soreness, let's say two to three days, one to three days, then I wouldn't be worried about that in the slightest. Now, if it's the case that maybe you've got pain that is more severe, not activity related, so you've got this pain that immediately came on during an exercise and it's maintained, it's not, you know, it's just present even when you're sitting and stuff. Of course, that's something that you'd be more concerned about. And if there's something like uh, pain that's mainly mainly on one side, let's say, or you heard a crack or a pop, or you've got a shooting down your leg, or you've got burning or tingling or something like that, those types of things are different. They're more on the pain spectrum. But I think that it's really important to realize that getting you know soreness in your lower back muscles during a workout and after a workout is an entirely normal part of the training process particularly if you're doing exercises like deadlifts, squats, bent over rows, or any other exercise that involves you loading your lower back. Now, with that said, if that's becoming the limiting factor for performance and it's not the primary training target, like in a squat, let's say, then maybe there's something that requires modification. Easy examples of that would be someone who maybe they start off their squat in a really exaggerated arch, So they're like got a total curve in their spine. Their muscles are really short. They feel contracted from the get-go. And then as they drop down into the squat, they end up in a really rounded position because they started really arched and they end up really rounded, really flexed. And as a result, their low back muscles are working loads throughout the repetition, throughout um, more of their contractile range rather than just kind of staying isometric like they would often do. And as a result, that might actually be something that you end up modifying. You might want to maintain a more neutral spine, focus on bracing through your core entirely rather than just using those low back muscles. So there's certainly technical changes that can be made to reduce soreness where it shouldn't be the limiting factor. Um, But yeah, they're just some of the notes on the low back. Again, the guidelines vary for all different muscle or different injuries, but that's the, uh, the primary thing that I think is really important to note when it comes to the lower back, that some degree of soreness is normal, just like any other muscle group, uh, but there might be some characteristics that push it along that injury spectrum. Yeah. And I think like the actual quality of the pain can help you understand this a little bit more, but you have to be somewhat objective with it. And pain is somewhat of subjective. So it's very hard to do, but like, for example, if you are doing a set of squats and all of a sudden you hear a pop and you know in the bottom position and you lose power to your leg and you're like struggling to rack it and then like you can't really feel your leg it's like that's obviously a different injury or you know that is an injury versus you waking up the next morning and having a really tight lower back and thinking you're injured you know so it it is hard to tell you oh this is the the protocol to do in this case when they're all so different and it's not like but we can only injure this area one specific way. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when you're dealing with more specific, like, like I guess when you're listening to this podcast, like don't use this for like diagnostic purposes, use it for big picture thinking and principles as it relates to injury. But if you're currently sitting at home and you're like, you know what? I got a bit of tingling down the leg. I heard a pop yesterday when I was working out, not sure what I should do with my low back. Like go and see a professional. You know, you go and see a professional if you got a specific injury. These are just kind of general principles that apply on the big picture level. Now, there are some other specific instances that 
maybe have their own rules of thumb or specific tips that I would offer. One of those that's really common in lifters would be related to the elbows. And that is either lifter's elbow or golfer's elbow, it's called medial epicondylalgia, pain basically along the inside of the elbow, but also on the outside of the elbow, you can get it as well. So these um, symptom presentations are typically associated with gripping exercises or pulling exercises, or sometimes if your wrist is cocked back in a bench press or in a, a low bar squat in particular, you might find that you're getting, you know, aggravation of the elbow. And there's some quite simple things that you can do to modify your symptoms there. Some of those would be, for example, using straps to offload the grippling muscles a little bit. So you're not constantly using them over and over and also modifying your gripping position in pushing exercises or squats. So for example, if you're doing a bench press and your wrist is constantly cocked back, this is something I used to have a lot of trouble with in the past. You want to try and keep your knuckles towards the ceiling so that your wrist is more neutral. Okay. The weight should be pressing down through the bony part of your palm and not through like the top part near your fingers. So if you're watching this, you'll see this. A lot of people let the bar rest across here up near the kind of pads of their fingers or their anti-knuckles as I call them. <laughs> Whereas what you want to do is actually let it more so along here. Okay. So as Patty's mapping out there from that arch between your thumb and your index finger, the bar should be resting from there across to the hypothenar eminence there. So the other part of your hand. Okay. So then it rests down through the forearm, which means that if you think like mechanically what's going on there, the weight's pushing directly down through the bones. So those bones are super strong in that direction, okay? Whereas if I cock my wrist back and the weight's hanging back there, all that strain is being put on the wrist and then also on the inside of the elbow where those wrist muscles attach, okay? So that's going to be a potential point of weakness. So that applies to all pushing exercises, but also to uh, squatting exercises. So if you're holding the bar on your back and you have to cock your wrist back to hold it, if you can either just put fingertips under it, take a wider um, grip maybe, or try to keep the knuckles more neutral or the wrist more neutral, that's going to help. In some cases as well, if someone's squatting with a low bar position, using wrist wraps like you would for a bench press exercise, which can also help as well, by the way, to keep the wrist neutral, that's something that could potentially be useful there. So there are some of the things that you would change. Now, if someone has more severe symptoms that maybe don't go away with uh, straps and it's just kind of persistent, then I'd probably reduce the overall volume of the pulling exercises or gripping exercises or exercises that are aggravating it. And that goes back to the principles that we discussed previously. Again, uh, of course, if you've got these symptoms and they're persistent and you're hearing a pop or a crack, or you've, you feel like you've strained the muscle again, see a professional because there can be utility in that for sure. So that again is, is one of the, the things that would come up quite commonly um, in my coaching practice. Now, other things that would come up commonly would be the, the like knee pain is, is very common and the principles are effectively the exact same as those that I've discussed previously in terms of the modifying the range of motion, modifying the resistance profile, modifying the tempo, the volume, etc. So you do have to really pay attention to those because I think a lot of people are really hesitant to like cut their squat range of motion short. You know, they're like, oh, but I take such pride in squatting deep, even though the pain is like really aggravated by that bottom position, which is most often the case when people have knee pain. Just 
take it in your stride, you know, do box squats for a few weeks. That's something that we use very frequently. Another thing that you can do is again, modify the resistance profile. So if you're doing a leg press or a hack squat, or even a barbell squat, if you use reverse bands or even standard band setups, you can make the exercise more challenging at the top um, and less challenging at the bottom, which is going to allow you to continue getting a, a decent training stimulus without aggravating uh, your knees in that most provocative position. So that's something that could be really useful. Tempo is also something that's really powerful when it comes to the knees in particular, especially if you're dealing with a patellar tendinopathy, so a tendon type injury in the knee, because if you drop really fast into a squat, there's a real spike in forces at the bottom. And that can often lead to symptoms for people. Whereas if you take three seconds down, pause for a second or two at the bottom, that can often be of great help to continue getting a positive training stimulus without aggravating those knees uh, over and over. So there are some of the things that would come to mind. Other things that you can do that are specific to the knees, I guess here would be if you're doing squatting exercises and you normally do a real high bar squat or a front squat and you squat really deep, those are more knee dominant in some sense. You definitely work through a large range of motion at the knee the knee is taking a bit more force overall. So what you can do is adopt a bit more of a hip dominant squat. So for example, a lower bar position or sit back more rather than allowing the knees to travel forward and sitting down as deep. And that'll change the muscles that are recruited. You'll feel a bit more in your low back and your glutes and your hamstrings and adductors even uh, a little bit less in the quads potentially, but you're taking a bit of the load off the knee and that can allow you to continue training. Um, from there so yeah, there are some of the specific things that would apply to the knee of course again varies by person varies by injury but there are some of the things that i would um have clients do quite frequently 100 so hopefully that gives people uh, a little bit of an idea of you know how to deal with certain areas and also to give them as you said like a bigger picture idea of how to deal with this stuff but i basically have I suppose like I kind of a two-part question. So what's the difference between like an acute injury and a chronic injury? And I don't mean like, you know, the definition or whatever. I mean, like, how do we deal with this? Like an acute injury, I think people are a bit better equipped to deal with that because generally they'll hear a pop or a fucking snap or something. And they'll be like, okay, you can take a few days off and then I'm going to ease back into it. Right. But if you have this like chronic injury that is kind of crep up on you a few you know over a few weeks or whatever especially like you know you said that like you know lifter's elbow or golfer's elbow like that kind of just creeps up on you you do a squat session one day the next day you're kind of like oh elbow's a bit at me it's fine then the next day you do another squat session you know two days time you're like oh it's a little bit worse here you know but those kind of chronic injuries right how do we deal with managing acute injuries versus chronic injuries is there some way of thinking of this and then also again as i said it's kind of a two-part question are we just taking time off? Is that the, is that what we should do? Should we just be like, right, I'm injured in whatever way, shape or form. Do I just do nothing now? Right. Should, is that going to be the protocol or are we, you know, modifying like we've been discussing and doing something and getting some movement through the, the body? Yeah. So with an acute injury, like let's say within the last week, there was a specific event that led to the onset of pain. And it's very clear that you can identify, you know, what caused it, when it onset, etc. There's kind of a fairly simple rule of thumb that you can start to follow or simple plan of action. And that would be initially, you definitely want to reduce your exposure. Okay, so like, let's say you just hurt your shoulder at the bottom of a bench press, 
Um, you know when it happened, you've got maybe five, six out of 10 pain at the moment, it's aggravated by activity. Very simple there. You're going to apply all the parameters I discussed previously um, with regards to like modifying your volume and all the other training parameters. You're going to see how your symptoms um, modify so that if they improve within a week, you again start building up again nice and slowly. But that threshold is going to depend on how severe the injury was. Obviously, if you tore your pec or something, like you're not going to be modifying your training yourself. Like you should be seeing a professional for that. But ultimately, that acute injury process, you're going to reduce the exposure and gradually try to build up and see how that goes. It mightn't always be very smooth, but typically I think your expectation there is going to be pretty positive. Like if you tweak something in the gym and you've got pain, you pull back, you see how the symptoms change and you begin to rebuild over the course of a number of weeks. And it's a pretty simple process like that, you know, whereas with chronic injuries, things that are there more long-term, they require a bit more nursing in that, like I've got right knee pain and it's, it's the side that I would like in, if you're familiar with jujitsu, it's the side that I would kind of pass on in jujitsu and do like a cut knee through, um, pass. It means that like this knee is constantly exposed to torquing forces over and over again. Okay. It's my dominant side. If I'm kicking a ball, that's going to be exposed to those forces. Um, I'm obviously training in the gym and everything, but that knee is at me and has been at me for a while. I don't really expect there to be anything that I can do that's going to improve it really quickly. Like I know that long-term it's a case of me modifying the, modifying the loading that I expose it to. So for example, in sport, I'll just say sport rather than jujitsu in sport. I want to avoid the positions that aggravate it the most in the gym. I want to obviously aggravate or avoid the positions that aggravate it the most modify my exercises in accordance with the principles that I discussed previously and continue to train as hard as I can while minimizing the symptoms that I'm experiencing. If I can continue to not aggravate it, I will see an improvement in my symptoms. I know that, but I don't really expect to get to the point where I can continue going into those provocative positions uh, without flaring up the symptoms in the way that I would if I'd never injured it in the first place. So I think that that's something that I will just deal with kind of longer term uh, on and off, you know, but it's not anything major, you know, it's, it's just, it's just one of those things that's a niggly area for me and everyone has those. And I think that one of the things I, I deal with most often in coaching is trying to explain to people that that's normal. Cause I think a lot of people have been sold the lie that like, you can train hard and take your training really seriously, especially in some sort of sport and just never experience pain or injury and just prevent all these things from happening. It's just not realistic, especially in more chaotic sports. Um, but you're going to have areas that will flare up every now and then. It doesn't mean that, you know, that's a, something that needs to always be fixed immediately. Sometimes you're going to have symptoms and it's okay. So for me, it's my right knee. Sometimes it's my left knee, you know, and I have different areas of my body that will creak and groan at me every now and then if I push my training a bit too hard. So for me, that's a longer term management strategy where I'm keeping all of those variables in check. I'm really paying attention to when I flare it up a bit more. Like, so for example, I had a, a jujitsu session a few weeks ago where 
there was an acute position that I that like someone switched their hips and suddenly I, f- I felt a real sharp pain on setting the knee immediately and I was like I'm after I'm after flaring that up now again I need to be careful over the next few sessions so I was just more careful I pulled back my training in the gym loads because I knew that this was a, a bit of a flare-up and that would it would it would improve again um within a few weeks so long term you're thinking about that nursing strategy you're not setting yourself the goal of like being pain-free in a week, but you're thinking more maturely about the long-term of what you can do to modify it. Now, that doesn't mean that you should accept long-term pain because very often like things can improve. Like if you've got a some sort of tendon injury or um, you've got a recurrent muscle strain or something like that, you can absolutely engage in specific rehab practices. But when it's something maybe that's more let's say deeper in the joint maybe it's a bit of a meniscal issue but it's not really warranting surgery or you know there's nothing that's immediately fixable then you might have to deal with those symptoms longer term um same if you've got like arthritic changes like some degree of arthritis in your joints which again is normal with age there's not necessarily a quick fix for that but you're modifying training in accordance with that so i think the most important thing is having a realistic having realistic expectations and understanding that if you've had symptoms in an area for three years, like you don't expect it to be gone in three weeks, you know, it's, that's just not realistic. You could certainly work towards it over a few months. Maybe it's that you have to, you've actually got clear things that have led to this. Like if you've got big programming red flags where you're in the red on all those variables that we touched on previously, you know, you've got poor technique, you're doing excessive volume, you've got no programming strategy, you never take time off, then you're far more likely to be able to get rid of this injury and not have to deal with it in future than the person who's been doing everything super diligently, but still has pain, you know? So it's very individual specific in that sense. 100%. Um, So like that kind of covers a lot of the stuff that I wanted to cover anyway, you mm-hmm. covered it all. Thank you. Um, just make sure to, to listen to the previous episode, by the way, if you haven't, because they are absolutely linked. Yeah. Like the previous episode did go into quite a lot of detail. Um, but I basically have two questions further. I've basically been grouping my questions supposedly. Um, but when do we go to a physio? And how do we know if a physio is good or not? Because that's also something, and obviously like we're saying physiotherapist here, um, I know in like America, they're called physical therapists, aren't yeah. they? Um, but you get it, a body mechanic, whatever, right? <laughs> um, when do we go to them? Like, what's the story? I think the most simple answer here is like, if you're uncertain and you don't know what you're doing, go and seek professional help. Okay. It might be a physio. It might be your GP for a referral for a scan or whatever. Um, but if you're uncertain, um, seek professional help. I think that's the most, I guess, wise and safe answer I can give. Um, because like sometimes, sometimes you'll go and seek professional help and you actually won't get any help and it's just useless. You know, you might get the referral for a scan and the scan returns kind of ambiguous outcomes and you still don't know what you're doing. But I think that like dealing with this on your own, especially in the absence of any sort of expertise, um, can be kind of, you know, risky or not necessarily risky, but will leave you just unsure of what you're doing. And maybe if you're someone that's listening to podcasts like this, you know, maybe you have a better idea of what you're doing. And I think that if you can very clearly make changes to your training that modify your symptoms and allow you to get clearly get on the path to recovery, 
then I don't think you need to be seeing a physio for that, you know, especially if you're someone who's used to modifying your programming. Maybe you know that your shoulder gets sore when you do certain things. Like you don't necessarily need to see a physio for that. Because like I said previously, if you're dealing with one of these chronic um, type of presentations where you've got shoulder pain that flares up every now and then when you push too hard in the gym, in the gym I'm not so sure that if you go to a physio, they're going to be able to fix that. Because I, like I said, it is a case of you looking at your training, looking to see if there's any red flags and then modifying accordingly over time. And if you're someone who is very used to managing your training and you've got a good knowledge of um, strength programming, let's say, your physio probably won't. Like probabilistically, like the most, it's most likely that your your physio doesn't know that much about strength programming. Like they might know, like to be fair, you'll find some great physios, but most people that you go to mightn't understand your programming very well. You know, they mightn't even train themselves sometimes. So they mightn't get it what you're doing. So I think that the other element to that as well is like, if you're dealing with uncertainty and you're not sure what to do, maybe you are someone who has a good level of knowledge, but you're still not sure what to do. Seek a physio that you know has knowledge that's relevant to to you and your situation. So if you're, let's say, a GAA player, go to a physio that you know works with a lot of GAA players. If you're a powerlifter, go to a physio that you know works with lifters. This is a really, really important point. It's one of your best filtering strategies to try to find someone that can actually help you. Because one of the most common scenarios and one of the reasons I'm very hesitant to refer people is because is that someone will be a powerlifter, let's say, deadlifting 300 kilos. And then they go to a local physio who's maybe used to seeing inactive people and they give them exercises for their knee or their low back with like a yellow TheraBand or very light stretches. And it's just pointless because this person is, is it's, they're just used to totally different loading. And this makes no dent on anything that they're doing. And without guidance on how to modify your programming, you're going nowhere. And that's what you need. You need guidance on what you actually, as I said previously, what you need to take away, what you need to modify, not just what you can add. And if you're, you know, following a specific strength program and you go to a physio and all that's changed is you've got a rub or a stretching program and your programming wasn't even looked at, like that's a, that's a red flag for me for like, that for trying to seek someone else out. So get someone that understands your sport or your, your context. Similarly, it might be that if you're an inactive person, maybe you're 70 years of age, you don't go to the physio who's generally working with 25-year-old powerlifters. You know? They might still help you for sure, but it's just less likely that they're going to have that, the expertise. So try to find someone that's specific to your situation, um, and that's how you're going to get the best outcomes, I think. As I said, my simple rule of thumb for when to seek help from a professional is when you're uncertain. Okay. That's probably very often, to be honest, seek the professional that's going to give you the most specific guidance. And then what was I going to say? Um, oh yes. If you've got symptoms that are completely new to you and something you're not used to dealing with, I would seek professional help. So you, you might be used to dealing with an achy joint, let's say, but now you've got like neurological symptoms where you've got maybe loss of sensation in an area, you've got numbness or tingling, you've got an area that's real red and swollen or specific tenderness on palpation, like that will make you suspicious of a fracture or something like that. 
that you want to get help for those things. Because sometimes people will think that it's something really benign that they just, oh, I can just modify my training. Whereas they might actually have a fracture or they might actually have a muscle tear or something a little bit more on the spectrum of requiring professional help. So it's kind of a bit of a cop-out answer, I guess, but if you're uncertain, seek help. <laughs> now look, as we said on the start of this, it's, look, we can't give all the answers here. Yeah. It's not like it's a, a singular uniform thing. It's, this is the chaotic world that we're dealing with. And as a result, you kind of need to deal with it on a case-by-case basis. So unfortunately, we can't do it on the podcast. But anyway, Gary, do you have any else, any else, anything else to say about injury, pain, pain management, anything at all? Um, I don't think so. I think that one of the things you should take heed of is that last point that you need to find someone that can, that understands your situation and can help you accordingly. And at the risk of self-promotion, we do have coaching spaces available (laughs) and I work with people who are experiencing some sort of pain, aches and pains, often many aches and pains associated with their training because I like to think I understand the training process relatively well so that's what I try to help people through especially a lot of people who have those maybe longer term issues that they're trying to deal with and they want to learn how to modify their programming and to be able to do that on their own in future that's something I try to help people with so if you just like fell and like fractured your femur and you're looking for online coaching like probably not the the best time but if you're someone who has shoulder pain aggravated by bench pressing or whatever you don't know what to do you want to get better results but this keeps holding you back then uh, I would be confident in saying that I can give you a helping hand so uh, no promises that you'll be pain-free in 12 weeks but uh, we will certainly try our best so if you're interested guys I do have coaching spaces available so do the rest of the triage coaching team so uh, if you're if you'd like you can get in touch in the description box below Do you have anything to add before I close it out? Absolutely not. Fantastic. So yeah, coaching space available, as I said. We also have an education site, the Coach's Corner, that you can subscribe to to enhance your education. That does include some things that will be very relevant to this discussion, such as understanding your anatomy well. If you want to learn your anatomy, that will definitely help your understanding of pain and injury. So that's something that you can learn on our member's site. If you'd like to follow along with everything that we're doing, we do have a lot of content that we're putting out on social media. So we have a triage method, Instagram page, a triage method, Facebook page, and we have a triage method, YouTube channel as well. So subscribe to all of the above or follow all of the above, and you'll be able to keep up with everything that we're doing. Each of our coaches also has an Instagram page that you can follow that will have unique content in addition to that posted on the triage page. So do make sure that you're following those. Also, if you go to the triage method, Instagram page and click following you'll see who we're following and they are our coaches so make sure that you're following along with the content that we're posting other than that guys i think that's pretty much everything if you like the podcast share the podcast leave a rating or review if you can and uh yeah that that would be a real help fantastic anyway guys enjoy yourselves <laughs>